0: Listen to this portion of God's word as found in Philippians. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love. Being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord by the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord.
1: So much, Betty. really appreciate that. So uh, for those of you who have not been with us over the last uh, several weeks, we are in a series called "One Month to Live," where we are looking at what it would look like if we found out, suddenly, that we only had 30 days left to live. What would we do differently? What were the things in our lives that would made well that would mean most to us? Where would we invest our time? How would we live our lives to the fullest? And then looking back, how could we be sure that we were living a life with no regrets? Well, this week we're going to be continuing down that path and looking at other insights that will help us to do just that. And today, we're looking specifically at what it means to live humbly. What is biblical humility? And what does that look like in our lives? What is it from a biblical perspective? Now, of course, no one models this any better than Jesus. Uh, When we think about this passage that Betty just read, we think about Jesus humbling himself, even coming into our world, emptying himself of his his position and authority in heaven to, to become like us, a servant to all. Jesus demonstrates humility from the manger, from his entrance, all the way to the cross. No one lives the kind of humility that Jesus lived. And we see from his example and from his teaching that humility is actually a requirement for entering the kingdom of God. It's a prerequisite for really being great. Greatness and humility are closely linked. In fact, if you think about it, humility is the foremost test of a great person or a great leader. It's recognizing that our identity and our sense of self-worth stems not from our accomplishments, from a worldly perspective, our successes from a worldly perspective, but instead how deeply we are rooted in Christ. If our identity is rooted in Christ and we recognize him as Lord of our lives, success will follow. Greatness will follow. A humble person continually surrenders their weaknesses and their inadequacies to God because they recognize that those same inadequacies and those same weaknesses will become conduits for God's strength and power in our lives. Isn't that interesting? God uses our weaknesses and our inadequacies, and he transforms them in such a way that they become the conduits for his strength and power in our lives. And so we actually need our weaknesses and our inadequacies. It's just they need to be channeled in the right way, through God, who transforms all things, who takes the broken things and makes them beautiful. Now, in 1 Peter 5, 6, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Did you catch that? You see, we spend so much time trying to figure out how to lift ourselves up in our own strength. We're always trying to pull ourselves up from our bootstraps. We want to appear competent and and successful in the eyes of those around us. But what we see in this passage is that it is he who lifts us up. He's the one who makes us great. And if you think about it, we can't really pull ourselves up from our bootstraps. No one's ever really been that successful at that. In fact, almost everyone who has accomplished anything of significance in the Bible, either started out doing way too much in their own strength and failed miserably, or they didn't think very much of themselves from the beginning, and God chose to use them in spite of themselves. Did you notice that pattern throughout the Scriptures? There are so many examples of people who were humble to begin with or were humbled who went on to do great things for the kingdom. And almost no one who starts out prideful ends up accomplishing anything of significance. There's something about that that should speak truth into our lives about how important humility is to our future success in God's kingdom. Think about Moses for a moment, growing up in royalty. Remember the story? His mother, a Hebrew woman, takes him, puts him in the Nile, and he's found by the daughter of Pharaoh. And, she's, and he's raised in this, as if he were the son of Pharaoh. He has everything accessible to him. But then, he later discovers his true identity, that he's a Hebrew, and he notices that his fellow Hebrews are being mistreated profoundly. And one day, he sees... Abuse taking place before him, and he snaps. He kills the man who is abusing his fellow Hebrew. And then he tries to bury the body in the sand. He thinks that no one saw, but as it turned out, somebody did see. And now he's a wanted man. Even Pharaoh is looking to kill him for his crimes, and so he has to flee. Into the desert, and for 40 years he remains in the desert serving as a shepherd, taking care of sheep. It's the most humbling of positions. For 40 years, everything that he thought was before him, growing up in a royal family, was lost. He probably thought all of the successes, all of the fame, all of the glory was completely eradicated by one. Mistake. And yet, that is where God finds him in the desert. God appears to him in the form of a burning bush. Remember the story? And he speaks to Moses. And he tells Moses that he is actually going to be the one that will deliver the Israelites from captivity. Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Essentially, he's saying, I'm sorry, God, but I think you've got the wrong guy. I'm confident that you've got the wrong guy. And then God goes on to explain his plan on how God is going to orchestrate all the things that have to happen for this deliverance to take place. And Moses is still thinking about his inadequacies, his weaknesses, his frailties. And he says to God, even after God describes the plan, he says, Suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I say to them? Do you sense the fear? And the insecurities coming out, God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites I am, has sent me to you. God is reiterating the fact that He is the center of everything, that He is the Creator. And the sustainer of life. I am the inexhaustible and the immeasurable. Just tell them that I am sent you. So, in a heartbeat, Moses has learned the identity and character of God. And simultaneously, he has discovered his own identity. You see, if God's name is I am, that must mean that Moses' name is I am not. And that's my name and your name as well. But we so easily forget that. We try to do so much in our own strength. Moses is still thinking about his inadequacies, his weaknesses, and his past failures, And he goes on to say, even after that, well, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe me? I've never been eloquent. Um, Please, please have someone else do this. He's begging God, please don't put me in this this position where I'm I'm bound to fail. Do you see how he's thinking about things from his own strength? And, And it says in the scriptures that God's anger burned because he recognized that Moses was not seeing God for who he is and for what he's capable of. But here's the good news, folks. While Moses may not have been I am, he knew I am. He knew I am. He knew knew the inexhaustible, the immeasurable, the sustainer of the universe, and he also came to recognize that God can do anything. God can do anything. And God empowered Moses to become one of the greatest leaders to ever live. Can you imagine spending 40 years as a shepherd feeling that your life had passed before you and that you had nothing to say that I have a legacy to offer. And yet God found him in that place. And made him one of the greatest leaders ever to live. That's how God works. Peter is another example of God using a broken person to do extraordinary things. We all know the story of Peter. Peter is one of the disciples. And on the night before Jesus went to the cross, you remember this? The night before Jesus goes to the cross, he gathers his disciples for the last supper... And this is what he says to them. He says, listen, this very night, all of you will fall away on account of me. All of you. And Peter looked around at the rest of the disciples. And he said, they may fall away, but I will not. I will not fall away. On account of you. You see, Peter is an example of a broken person who doesn't even know himself. He doesn't even know what he doesn't know. Have you ever met a person who doesn't know what they don't know? Yes. Now, not only is Peter overly confident, he's convinced that somehow or another, He has more power, more resolve than all of the other disciples. And so Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Three times, Peter, tonight. And then Peter doubles down. It's like he didn't think Jesus knew what he was talking about. He doubles down on his self-confidence, and he said, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you, Lord. I will never deny you. And because of Peter's confidence and resolve, all the other disciples said, yeah, same with us. And then Jesus is silent. And when the time comes, he says, fellas, it's time to go. It's time to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when they get there after a time of prayer, Jesus is arrested and he's brought before the Sanhedrin to be questioned. And all of the disciples are scattered. They're terrified because they think they're going to be killed. And it says in the scripture that Peter, as Jesus was being led away by the Sanhedrin, followed from a distance. He wanted to see What happened? So he follows from a safe distance. And while Jesus is being questioned, Peter is in the courtyard just outside, sitting in the courtyard, when a servant girl recognizes Peter, and she says to him, Hey, you were with Jesus. And Peter looks around, and he says, I was not. I I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know the man. And then, obviously, he's feeling kind of awkward. You know, there's a lot of pressure. So he gets up, and he moves from where these people are, where this servant girl is, and he moves out to the gate. He's obviously trying to remove himself uh, from this company that recognized him. And while he's standing near the gate another servant girl sees him, and she says, hey, that guy was with Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter said, I do not know the man. Okay, he's trying to save his own skin. I don't know the man. And a short time later, Dawn had come. It was starting to become morning. Light was falling on this courtyard, and people were starting to get up from the town, and they were coming into the area, and a crowd gathered, and they asked, what is going on around here? What's happening here? They started discussing the matter, and then someone looked at Peter and said, surely you were one of them. Your accent gives you away. And Peter is getting desperate at this point desperate. And so he starts calling down curses. He's swearing up and down. And he swears to them, I did not know that man. And as soon as he said that, the rooster crowed. And in Luke 22, 61 and 62, it says that the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter And Peter remembered the words that the Lord had spoken. And scripture says that he left the courtyard and he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter had promised to be true, even if it cost him his life. And he failed. He failed. But here's the thing. When Jesus was looking at Peter... He was not looking at Peter with scorn. He was not looking at him with scorn. He was looking at Peter with compassion. With compassion. You see, in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, and this is actually before Peter denied Christ, Jesus pulled Peter aside and he said to Peter, Listen. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail and when you have returned to me strengthen your brothers I'm sure in that moment Peter was kind of like okay because Jesus already knows what's going to happen. But Peter is still in the dark. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, Satan wants to bring you down, but I have prayed for your protection. And when you return to me, meaning you are going to fall, Peter, you are going to fail, but you're going to get back on your feet. And when you get back on your feet, use that experience to strengthen your brothers. Allow your failure to become a conduit for my strength and power in your life. You will come back stronger. Peter might have thought in that moment when the rooster crowed, and he saw Jesus looking at him, that his ministry days were over. That that was it. He had a chance, and he blew it. But Jesus knew that Peter was finally in a position where he could really be used by God. Peter had been overly confident, brash, and now he was humbled And from that point forward, he would always look to God instead of his own strength and power. Now, some of you may be at that crossroads today. You may be thinking about the ways that you have failed. And you may think that because of your failures, your best days are through. But that's not what this passage is sharing with us. In fact, it's sharing the exact opposite. What it's saying to us today is that if we are willing to humble ourselves and look to God, your failure may be the very thing that enables you to tap into God's power like never before. It may be the failure that you need to truly experience the power and presence of God. Peter, of course, went on to do incredible things for the kingdom. And Jesus predicted it. Remember when Jesus said to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And Jesus said that to Peter when he was anything but a rock. Okay? Because when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see who you are now. He sees what your potential is if his power and presence was flowing through you. And he will do whatever it takes to enable that to happen. At Pentecost, it was Peter who stood up when the Holy Spirit fell, and he was the one that addressed the crowd, and he spoke with such power and such conviction that Scripture says 3,000 were added to their number that day. That must have been a pretty awesome sermon. I would have liked to have heard that sermon. I looked for it on YouTube. It's not there. (laughs) But Peter's story should remind us That we need to redefine failure. You see, in our culture, failure is something that we avoid at all costs. And yet what we're seeing in this passage is that failure was actually part of God's master plan for bringing about the kind of character in a person that would enable them to do great things for the kingdom. This past week, I attended the Willow Creek Leadership Summit. And as you might imagine, given the things that are happening around Willow Creek, failure and humility were central themes of this year's summit. One of the speakers at the summit said this about failure. Failure informs your next success. Failure informs your next success. It's not a failure... It's a learning. We need to start looking at past failures as learning experiences that will be conduits for God's presence and power. That's what failure really is. We live in a no-fault society where everybody blames everybody else for anything that goes wrong. We have excuses for everything. But let me tell you, that is a certain way to not learn from our failure. As soon as we blame someone else for something that we have failed in, we have lost the opportunity to learn from that experience and to go on to do greater things through that experience. We try so hard to save face in our failures But do you know that only plays into the hand of the enemy? That's exactly what the enemy wants us to do. Let me tell you another example that you're probably very aware of King David. King David, we know his story. He climbed so high and overcame so much and fought and won so many battles in God's grace and power. And yet one spring, at the climax of his power and authority and reign, he found himself in a place that he should not be. That's what scripture says. Have you ever been in a place that you should not be? And after a series of compromises, David had committed adultery and then followed that up with murder to cover his tracks. That's a pretty profound failure. And he responded to those failures in the same way that many of us do. He lied, he tried to cover it up, and then he tried to ignore it. He tried to ignore it. He went through the motions as if nothing had happened. For more than a year. For more than a year. But God would not leave him in that state. And so he sent the prophet Nathan to confront and to restore David. Notice that David didn't bring himself to it. But God intervened because of his love for him. Now, here are three things that we need to think about when it comes to being restored and to living a life of humility. First, we need to take responsibility for our sins. No more blaming. No more ignoring. No more rationalizing. In Psalm 32, 3 through 5, David writes this about his life. And this this is the season in which David was trying to avoid the reality of his situation. He says this, When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy upon me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. And finally, I confessed my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will Confess my rebellion to the Lord. You see, we have all messed up. We have all messed up. But if we will just confess our sins and quit blaming others and stop wishing that it would just go away, God will take those failures and he will use them as conduits for his greatness for his power and his strength in our lives and he will restore us and he will give us another chance in proverbs 28:13 it says a man who refuses to admit his mistakes will never be successful but if he confesses and forsakes them he will get another chance You see, we serve a God of second chances. But we also need to remember that God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud, but he lifts up the humble. Number two, we need to let go of our guilt. We need to let go of our guilt. In getting rid of our secrets, God wants us to let go of our guilt as well. You see, sometimes we can be forgiven for something, but we still can't let it go. We're still holding on to the guilt, and that guilt is actually what's dragging us down and keeping us from being effective. So we not only need forgiveness, but we need to let go of our guilt. We need to let go of the shame. One of my favorite verses about Peter, going back to Peter, is in Mark 16, verse 7, where Jesus had just risen from the dead. Remember, he's standing by the tomb. The angel of the Lord is standing by the tomb. And the women that had come down to the tomb to put herbs and spices and to check upon the tomb, see the angel of the Lord standing there, and he says... Go tell my disciples and Peter. Go tell my disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you unto Galilee, and there you will see him just as I told you. If Jesus took the time to call out the one disciple that had failed him the most other than Judas, which I'm not sure we can count. Do you think he might be revealing something about his heart and character to you and me today? For all of us who have fallen short, for all of us who have failed, maybe this story is in the Bible because God wants you to know that he's calling your name. That he wants you to know That your future is secured by the cross. That you are forgiven. And that he is waiting for you. Go tell my disciples and make sure you tell Peter. You could insert your name there. That they will see me in Galilee. Why? Because this is not the end. You may have thought that this was the end. But this is actually a new beginning. In 2 Corinthians 12.10, Paul says, For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see this ongoing thread that's woven through the scriptures? It's in our weakness that we find God's power. So if you feel weak today and maybe it's been months or even years since you've really experienced the presence and power of God, you're probably in a very good place if you recognize where you are and where you need to be. Number three, we need to abide in his presence. If we really want to see God and to see what he can do in our lives and not just what we can do, It comes down to abiding in his presence. We're always trying to figure out things that we can do for God. But instead of thinking about what it would look like for us to do things for God, we need to start thinking about what it would look like to do things with God. There's a difference. We need to stop doing things in our own strength. We could even do ministry in our own strength. And instead, we need to be asking the Lord to fill us with his presence and power, the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And did you know that learning humility is a sign of maturity? It's a sign of maturity. It's getting to the place in our lives where we are willing to trust God God enough to give him our brokenness our frailties our failures and then allowing him to really be lord of our lives that's when we start to develop maturity and after David's fall he learned humility after that experience that David tapped into, and, and, and the, the restoration that took place. If we look at David's life from that point on, we see that he was so quick to look to God and so humble in his responses to challenges. He just automatically gave it to God and trusted him. And God is offering today to take all of our weaknesses and all of our inadequacies And he's saying to us, I will turn them into conduits for my strength and power in your life if you'll let me. If you'll let me. But I can't do it unless you're willing to learn humility. God wants us to live the abundant life. That's what this series is about. Tapping into the vision that God has for our lives. He wants us to live with purpose and he wants us to leave a legacy and he wants us to be able to look back at the end of our lives and say, wow, I have left a legacy for good. No regrets. And this series is offering us some practical insights to help us get there. We need to really live our dash. Every moment is important. We can't waste time. We need to live passionately. And we need to be willing to love completely. And we need to humble ourselves before the Lord so that he can lift us up. Let's not waste one more minute. Let's decide today that this is the life that we want to embrace. And allow God to move from the passenger seat of our lives to the the driver's seat. It's time for a new beginning. And that's what God wants for all of us. And all it costs us is a willingness to say, all right, Lord, if you really want this, I'm willing to give it to you. And God will say, I've been waiting since before you were born for you to say that. Now, prepare for greatness. The abundant life. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for your willingness to love us. To love us so deeply that you won't leave us in a place of brokenness. That you won't allow failure to define us. Lord, when you think about us, you define us by our greatest moments. And you want to be a part of those moments. Lord, I pray that we would be able to redefine our concept of failure today. And that we would learn humility. So that we could allow our brokenness and our failures to become conduits for your strength and power. So we can truly be great in your kingdom. In Jesus' name.